Our second guest on the show today is Danny Nadal. Professor Nadal is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, jointly appointed at the Department of Political Science and the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. His work focuses on topics related to global security and international order. Nadal has previously taught at Carnegie Mellon University's Institute of Politics and Strategy, the U.S. Army War College's Department of National Security and Strategy, and Georgetown University. In 2019, he received a Wimmer Faculty Fellowship for Innovative Teaching on Critical Reading. He has held fellowships at MIT's Security Studies Program, Yale University's International Security Studies Program, and the University of Birmingham's Institute for Conflict, Cooperation, and Security. He has also worked with International Studies Quarterly, Aberystwyth University, Getulio Vargas Foundation, and the China-Brazil Business Council. He is currently writing a book entitled Urban Warfare and Urban Peace, exploring the relationship between urban geography and interstate conflict. Hello, Professor Nadal. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk about the human cost of the war uh, in Ukraine on the one-year anniversary. Thanks, Antoine. Happy to be here. To get things started, I think the obvious start point for this interview is to really focus on the two main belligerent countries in this conflict, uh, Ukraine and Russia. And really, what have been the primary human impacts of the war on Ukraine and on Russia? How do they differ? And potentially, how are they similar? So I think it's important to, to think about the human costs of war in fairly broad ways. We can, of course, talk about the human cost primarily in terms of the direct casualties of the fighting, right? The people who have been killed or wounded in the actual fighting within Ukraine since the invasion in uh, February 24th. And those would include military casualties on the Ukrainian side, military casualties on the Russian side, as well as civilian casualties, primarily uh, on the Ukrainian side. Estimates uh, of those casualties are still a little fuzzy, right? Because it's hard to to count these things, especially in, in the in the fog of war. We get estimates from different agencies, from the Ukrainian government, from international NGOs, from the UN, and they they vary. Most of them are in the ballpark of somewhere between forty and sixty thousand to upwards of a hundred thousand uh, military casualties, including dead and wounded on the Ukrainian side, and something similar, possibly a bit higher on the Russian side. The UK government releases those numbers on a regular basis, and they tend to be on the on the upper end of those estimates. The Ukrainian government seems to be on the lower end. Then, of course, we have the, the civilian casualties from, from the fighting, and those are also very, very hard to, to count. But we have general estimates that put it in in the order of magnitude of 10,000 to 15,000 civilian casualties, uh, again, dead and wounded on the Ukrainian side. And this, and this is where things start to get a little complicated, this, this includes casualties of Ukrainians fighting on the Ukrainian side, but also possibly of Ukrainians fighting on the Russian side. And it's hard to to parse those out, especially in contested areas where civilian casualties are hard to identify, right? It's hard to, to, to say with, with certainty which way 
those 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 allegiances lend. Um, but th that's that's the the order of magnitude we're talking about, right? Somewhere around 100 to 200,000 military casualties, and somewhere around maybe 20,000 civilian casualties in a year of war. But of course, that severely underestimates the human costs of the conflict. Um, we're looking at um, different agencies put it with the estimates around 8 million internally displaced peoples and about the same number of, of international refugees, right? So either people who had to move within Ukraine uh, to escape or to try to escape the fighting um, and people who have left the country altogether. And this includes people who have just left neighboring countries or people who have come to Canada and other places. Uh, and this starts to give us a bigger sense of the, the real costs of the war, right? We're not talking about a couple hundred thousand, we're talking about millions of people who have had their lives indefinitely put on hold or who have had to, to reinvent their lives to seek new places to, li to live, have had to reinvent themselves, have had to, to leave everything behind. Um, and of course, that doesn't include the people who have not been directly affected in the sense of having their lives ended or, or changed uh, in that way, but have lost the people they love, have lost opportunities. Uh, so that's a, a bigger picture. And then we can start talking about the indirect effects beyond Russia and Ukraine. That's a great place to start. It's I think it's easy to see the kind of daily reports from the Ministry of Defense from the UK, for example, and just think of these people as statistics uh, on a sheet. But, you know, a reminder that there are a lot more numbers involved, uh, as as you clearly uh, demonstrated, but then also that each one of those numbers is, is an individual who has their own story. That brings us nicely to our next question, which is, you know, most people alive in Europe and also around the world today um, have had the privilege of not knowing directly what war can do to a population um, and the ramifications that it can have um, around the globe. So what has been, in your view, the most shocking lesson or maybe the most important lesson of how the human costs can spiral due to a unarmed conflict? Despite the fact that this is a war happening in Europe, right, or at least in what we would consider Europe, and there's, you know, I'll always talk about what is Europe anyway, uh, where does Europe begin and, uh, and end? That's part of, I think, what's at stake here. Right, is Ukraine really part of Europe or not? And I think we have different opinions on, on this uh, being played out, but um, that the the effects are much broader, right? Just like the effects of the of the war the wars in Yugoslavia, um, and the wars follow following the dissolution of the Soviet Union, um, had broader effects. So does this war have broader effects? We're looking at the effects of the war on the supply of foodstuffs, right, of commodities uh, that led to a price shock in, in, in key in key grains, wheat, um, in particular, and oats. Um, early on in the conflict, the prices, the prices seem to have mostly normalized at this point, but it led to, to a price shock, which led to a spike in, in hunger uh, and food insecurity around the world, in particular in the most sensitive, in the most vulnerable parts of the world, including a lot of sub-Saharan African countries in the Middle East, countries that were already suffering from their own humanitarian catastrophes and were already uh, either teetering, teetering on the brink or uh, in the in the midst of massive hunger crises. 
Um, so it has accentuated a lot of those problems. It has strained resources for international humanitarian agencies. It has strained the willingness of countries to engage in more risky diplomatic or um, or intervention maneuvers in, in other parts of the world where those efforts could uh, could help uh, alleviate the um, the consequences of of those different humanitarian catastrophes. So we we are seeing sort of ripple effects of this conflict. And I think we're going to continue to, to, to do so. We're going to continue to see the effects of this, uh, especially as the tensions between US and Russia complicate efforts to cooperate within the Security Council or within other informal spaces in the resolution of other problems. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's an incredibly important point to, to focus in on. Uh, for our listeners, a couple of statistics. Food prices have gone up around the world. Uh, the cost of living crisis has gone up around the world. But two uh, statistics that really popped out at me is that uh, I believe the current estimates say that food prices in Syria um, have risen over 90% since the start of the conflict. And that's even before the devastating earthquake that just uh, occurred. And in Ethiopia, food prices has, have gone up uh, around 44%. So like you said, these are countries that are already vulnerable, um, that were already vulnerable before the conflict. And due to Ukraine and Russia's uh, status as you know some of the largest grain uh, exporters in the world, you know, some of these countries have, you know, 90% of their grain comes from either Ukraine or Russia. So the indirect human impact, as you've articulated it, is very present. But again, uh, with a further question is, with these impacts being so devastating for these lower income countries, sub-Saharan countries, Middle Eastern countries, sub-Saharan African countries, Middle Eastern countries, what is the reason for uh, not covering these stories as much as the conflict itself in Ukraine. Is there a problem in media coverage uh, regarding these crises? And, you know, if so, how can we start addressing these crises in these countries? Right. That's that's, that's a great question. And again, here it's, it's important not to paint with too wide a brush, but I think we can make some 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 general claims about media coverage in Western countries. And one of those broad generalizations is that geography matters, right? That things that are happening closer closer to us here in the West tend to be reported more more consistently and more directly. And that's partly a matter of you know printing what the public wants to read, but also the resources available for these organizations, it's harder to, to do consistent coverage of places further away. So that's, you know, I think um, a the generous interpretation. The less than generous interpretation is that there's a racial component, right? And it's hard, it's hard to avoid this. And early on in the conflict, a lot of personalities in the news media and commentators said the, the quiet part out loud, right? They would emphasize that, Part of what's so shocking is that these people look just like us, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, um, it would be a, a white person usually saying that, right? That, oh, they look just like us. It, it, that's what makes it all the more shocking and what draws a lot of the attention. And again, not to say that everyone everyone has that bias, but the bias exists and the, the bias drives coverage. Um, 
So I think for a lot of people, it's easy to dismiss humanitarian catastrophes in Sub-Saharan Africa or in the Middle East, right? When we have these stereotypes that, yeah, of course, that they are in the middle of a conflict or in the middle of a crisis, that's where conflicts and crises happen, right? So it becomes normalized that those parts of the world are, you know, the domain of anarchy, chaos, conflict, hunger, poverty. Uh, and Europe is where peace is supposed to be predominant, and therefore it's worthy of coverage when when it deviates from that norm. So there's a lot of that happening. Uh, and of course, there's also the, the 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 point that a lot of the coverage is driven by a focus on what the U.S. and NATO are doing about it, right? If the U.S. and NATO were more directly involved in those crises, the coverage would follow because the coverage tends to follow um, what the U.S. and Germany and the U.K. do, especially for those for those countries' media platforms. Uh, so we see this uh, with regards to Haiti, for example. Coverage of Haiti has actually been fairly consistent. Why? Because it's closer, because there is an expectation of involvement and there is some direct involvement from the United States, from Canada, uh, in what into what's happening in Haiti right now. So we see coverage that is actually fairly consistent. We don't see as much about Yemen. We don't see as much about Mali or Central African Republic and so on, countries that quantitatively are doing far worse. Yeah, I, I think your comment about the normality of crises in those areas of the world really strikes true. You know, humans are a creature of habit for better or for worse. And it has become a habit for us to think about, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East as a place in turmoil. So, uh, you know, I didn't even think about that. So that's a, a very powerful statement. I think that brings us nicely with our conversation about media coverage. You know, the war in Ukraine is... It's definitely been the first, I would say, holistically live-streamed war in human history. The readily available nature of the media, um, and when I say media, I don't just mean news agencies um, like CNN or or BBC or any of those, um, but also just everyday people, uh, whether it's Ukrainian soldiers and Ukrainian civilians filming their experiences with the war, whether it's Russian soldiers filming, uh, you know, petition letters to the Kremlin um, that make their way on to various social media platforms like Telegram or Twitter or, or, or Facebook. So what has this kind of live streamed effect uh, or live stream component of the war affected our perception of the conflict? And and do you think it, it maybe has affected our perception of warfare in general? And then kind of to follow up as well is, you know, is the genie out of the bottle, so to speak, regarding real-time civilian-led or everyday people-led social media and media coverages of open conflicts? Yeah, that's 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 super important. And here I'll 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 say something that is it's gonna sound hypocritical based on what I'm gonna say right after. I think we're we're learning a few things about um the role of social media. One is that it can in a way democratize access to information, right? We see a lot of people becoming informed about what's happening in Ukraine much more directly, more effectively than they would if they had to wait for for the news to filter through major media outlets. 
uh, or government reports or press reports or um, press statements from the White House or, or whatever. Right? So we're seeing information becoming more democratized in that sense. And we're also seeing the importance of that media space, of social media space, as one of the, the one of the battle spaces, right? One of the places where the battle is fought. And we've been preparing for this for for, for a while now, um, where the control of the flow of information and the, the ability to influence the public's view and the experts' views on what's happening on the ground is part of what the, the different actors in the conflict are spending a lot of their time and resources on, right? And they were doing this before the before the invasion, right? Russia notoriously has spent a lot of its time and effort uh, trying to dominate all the, the information, information space, trying to flood it with misinformation and disinformation and, uh, right, Twitter is full of, of Rus- Russian uh, Twitter bots. Um, and this is true of all social media. It's also true that the United States, NATO, NATO allies, and Ukraine themselves have, haven't just been sitting by and watching it happen. They've been engaged in counter uh, disinformation efforts. They've been involved in propaganda of their own. This is just an acknowledgement that this is what countries do, both in wartime and in peacetime. They engage in propaganda efforts against each other, and that some countries have a natural advantage as a result of their ability to control the flow of information domestically and the available pool of resources. And I think one of the big surprises for a lot of people early on in the conflict was that Russia wasn't doing so well, right? That Russia didn't manage to control the narrative uh, that some of the, the breathlessness with which um, Western analysts had accused Russia of being so effective, right? So, um, so, so clever and so effective at dominating the information battle space. It seemed to, to, to kind of crack as soon as the, as soon as the invasion started. Uh, we still see misinformation fluttering about, right? We see still, uh, see all the, all the, all the Twitter bots peddling this Russian disinformation, but it hasn't doesn't seem to have been very effective in shaping the narrative within the West. I think uh, the efforts to suppress that, to counter that, have been very very effective. Have, they, have, they have been very successful. Um, so I'm I'm making all I'm, I'm you know I'm I'm giving all these these lessons learned, these conclusions that we've derived at, but I want to temper that with saying that it's too soon to say right, and th- it's it's too soon to say what the effect of this will, will be ultimately on the outcome of the conflict. And this is one of the problems with social media is that we tend to jump to conclusions and it has reinforced the tendency uh, to draw analysis, right? The, 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 the infamous problem of hot takes in social media is real. Uh, we have a lot of real experts sharing their expertise on social media. We have real experts who are tracking and, and participating in the collection and analysis and dissemination of information of open source intelligence through social media, gathering off information through the, the social media platforms themselves, right? Using Twitter as a source of, of, of intel, right? All those people live streaming the conflict or, you know, p- taking pictures of tanks rolling by or sharing drone footage, video from their own private drones. All those things can become a piece of information that good analysts can can interpret and, and make sense of and then share with the public. The problem that it's it's often hard on social media to parse out the people who are the real experts from the people who are just jumping to conclusions or drawing incorrect in- inferences based on often limited, sometimes manipulated information. So we, we've seen a lot of a lot of bad hot takes uh, and a lot of early conclusions drawn 
that were subsequently falsified by by following events. Uh, and so I think we just have to be be careful with that. We're not being too quick to to accept analysis that we see on social media, not be too quick to to declare that any given battle was won by by just looking at the reports in social media or getting or scaring ourselves into bunkers because someone in Belarus took a picture of a train that looked like it might possibly have nuclear warheads on it, right? We've seen some of these 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 moments where people draw conclusions from Russian nuclear forces being moved around because they get moved around all the time uh, and they and they think, oh, they're moving nuclear forces around. This must mean that a nuclear attack is imminent when there's no such clear indication. You know, I, I kind of, just to build off that a little quickly, there is kind of a component that is echoing the Vietnam War in a sense, where in many ways the Vietnam War was, at least for the American public, the first time the media had access to, you know, uh, footage and, and, and pictures of, of the war and, you know, contributed greatly to the anti-war movement in the United States uh, during the 1960s and 1970s. Do you see something similar occur now with the war in Ukraine, but maybe on a global scale? Or does it run the risk of just becoming the the ever increasing white noise of social media. So that's an interesting question, right? I think it, um, the way we think about the answer depends on how we think most people, the average public, uh, actually consume information and how much they trust the information they consume, right? And I think the um, the answer to that question varies from country to country. Right? In some countries, social media is a much bigger share of how people consume information um but it doesn't necessarily mean that they trust the information that they're consuming uh we've we've seen um i think fairly damning surveys suggesting that most americans for example just don't trust traditional media Mm -hmm. um and they may or may not trust most social media platforms either um, people are consuming more more videos on YouTube than they are on TV. What does that mean, right? What, what kind of content are they are they consuming? Where is it produced, right? So in Vietnam uh, during the Vietnam War, people were consuming media. They were reading reports, often from embedded journalists or foreign correspondents, but the the channels of information were were very limited, right? You had a couple mm-hmm. of major newspapers and a couple of major uh, news channels in, in any given country. Uh, if you're in the UK, you basically have BBC and then a couple of newspapers. If you're in Canada, you had CBC and then a couple of newspapers. In the US, you had three or four news networks and then a few newspapers that had correspondence embedded. So you had a limited pool of, of a limited set of channels through which the information flowed. And they were mostly following common journalistic standards, uh, government had some relationship with those with those sources um now it's 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 more of a free for all there's a lot more variation uh, there's a lot more um variety of different points of view and it is more vulnerable to capture by malicious actors um what is it what does it mean for how the attitudes are being formed right it's 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 interesting to look at the, the the Vietnam analogy because one of the I think one of the myths about the Vietnam War 
right, is that it was won in Vietnam and lost in D.C. in no small part because of the role of the media in in uh, granting the, the North Vietnamese various propaganda wins. And I think this has been largely disproven. And, but I think the, the concern exists in, in countries like the United States that Ukraine can do very, very well on the battlefield. But if the narrative that arrives in Western capitals and uh, among the Western publics is not one of consistent support and consistent lionization of Ukrainian efforts, that eventually the support is going to dwindle, that publics will will withdraw their support, and that politicians will have a harder time selling their publics on the necessity of supporting Ukraine uh, staunchly and consistently. And so you've seen a very, very significant effort on the part of, of, of Western governments in promoting their own narrative. And we've seen, I think, something that is very dangerous, which is a certain amount of censorship, of self-censorship and censorship and political vitriol in in these spaces, in social media, in the Western media, and in, in, in policy circles. Anyone who questions the narrative, who tries to offer an alternative viewpoint, uh, not just you know Putin apologists and, and useful idiots, but people who have genuine uh, concerns about escalation or genuine concerns about the humanitarian effects of of broadening the the scope of the conflict, any of those conversations can be easily shut shut down, uh, and that's in no small part because people I think have internalized that Vietnam narrative that if mm-hmm. we don't support wholeheartedly, right, if we allow for any doubt, if we allow for for dissent, then we, we're going to lose the the war at home. Very interesting and. I think very pertinent for the current media landscape. I think that brings us nicely to our last question for the interview, which is, you know, nobody knows when or how this conflict will end. And, you know, all we can hope for uh, is that it will end eventually. But just because the conflict ends, just because hostilities cease, uh, doesn't mean that the human cost of war will end and will, will stop. So could you tell our listeners, you know, ideally, uh, what would need to happen in Ukraine, in Russia, uh, in the international community um, to try and minimize further human suffering once the transition from war to peace begins? Right. So let's let's say the war ends tomorrow. Right. That's I think that's we can all agree that's highly unlikely. But let's say the war ends tomorrow. Right. It can it can end tomorrow one of three ways. Can there's there's more possible scenarios, but let's let's pick one of uh, one of these three ways. One is Ukraine wins. Right. Ukraine managed to push Russia out of all its uh, internationally recognized territories, uh, including Crimea. Russia goes home. You know they say okay we lost. Does that what what does that mean for for the for the for the human costs of war? At that point, you can start a process of resettling refugees and resettling IDPs. But first, you need to rebuild many of the cities that have been uh, laid to ruin. You have to rebuild the infrastructure. You have you have to reestablish those social networks. 
these people have been gone now some for for almost a year they've constructed new lives they might not necessarily want to abandon their new lives to come back the process of reselling idps and refugees is also always extremely complicated expensive and politically fraught uh, some of the territories that would be resettled are territories that have been contested or controlled by pro-russia forces since since 2014 right mm -hmm. so there's going to be some extremely corrosive political contestation over the status of of those territories uh, there's going to be a lot of, of of a lot of fighting over what to do with the people who collaborated with with russian forces and pro-russian separatists right there's going to have to be some 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 reckoning some transitional justice process to to bring um to bring war criminals and 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 other regular criminals to justice right people who engaged in in, in criminal activity during war not necessarily war crimes against humanity but other criminal activities that supported the the the, the invasion or supported the 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 secessionist movements so that continues then you have to think about how to bring back the people who have been taken from Ukraine and brought into Russia right the the, the thousands according to some reports of of children men and women uh who have been forcibly removed uh and and, and brought to Russia how do you deal with those so that's you know that's the best case scenario for Ukraine <laughs> And then we have the, the the not so good scenarios, one in which Russia managed to stay in parts of Ukraine, right? They managed to to remain to remain to to keep control of Crimea and maybe some other parts of of of, of Donbas. Um, what does what does that mean for the people who live there, right? For the the Ukrainians who live under Russian control, and for and and for the the people who might not want to remain in Russian control that becomes a perennial problem, right? And uh, this is what we've seen in frozen conflicts throughout um, Eastern Europe, the Caucasus and the Balkans, this prolongation of the state of instability and uncertainty uh, and recurrent conflict that has plagued places like Georgia and Moldova and so on. And then of course we have the, the cataclysmic scenario of the escalation of a conflict where the war is interrupted only to be followed by another Russian invasion a year down the line and another major conflict which this time potentially escalates to a broader war with NATO. If something like that happens, it's hard to to, to start to put into uh, into numbers what the, the human cost of the war would be. But it's, it's a real possibility that we can't discount. Well, I think in, in every scenario you just laid out, uh, the options are sobering for sure. And... It's it's I think uh, what this last year has shown us is that um, it's always easier to start a war than to end one. But with that, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for giving our listeners such relevant and poignant analysis on this subject. And yeah, thanks. Thanks once again. My pleasure. Once again, that was Professor Danny Nadal, who joined us for a discussion on the human costs of the war in Ukraine. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines on CIUT 89.5 FM. That wraps up our show for this week. We were joined by Professor Janice Stein and Professor Danny Nadal. Many thanks to them for coming onto the show to discuss the implications of the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine. Today's show was produced by myself, Antoine Fougère-Ramsamouj, alongside my co-producer, Mina Zaheen. 
If you liked today's episode, please like and review us wherever you are listening. The views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect the views of the producers, CIUT, or the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. If you missed any part of the show, be sure to check out our podcasts of all our episodes on our website at www.beyondtheheadlines.net, as well as on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you're a fan of the show or want to stay up to date with policy issues in Canada, follow us on Twitter at beyond underscore headlines. Again, that's at B-Y-O-N-D underscore headlines. You can also check us out on Facebook and Instagram. Next week, we bring you an important discussion on the prevalence and advent of sexual violence in armed conflict. Be sure to tune in as we continue to take public policy discussions out of the hallways and onto the airwaves. Thank you.